The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today the next passage we come to is in Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. And it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem had stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If them, then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. So please shine your light brightly this morning. Uh, help us to see everything we need to see about who you are, what you've done what you promise, what you teach, and what you desire for our lives. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1964, Paul Gatling was convicted of a murder that he didn't commit. The victim of the murder, Lawrence Rothwart, had been shot and killed 
in his home in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, the previous year. And a witness placed Gatling, and you can display his picture on the screen there, in, uh, around that area, around the, the time of the murder. So detectives brought Gatling in for questioning, and yet refused to allow him to speak with his attorney through until the multi-hour questioning session had been completed. Gatling, who was six foot one, was then placed in a lineup with three shorter men, and Mrs. Rothbard, the wife of the deceased, was called in to identify him. However, she didn't pick him out even after she was reportedly told to focus on the taller one. Then a few nights later, as Gatling was being interviewed by investigators, Mrs. Rothbert went back to the police station where the interview was taking place, observed Gatling being interviewed, and only then did she tell detectives that he was the one who had killed her husband. On the basis of that identification, though, which, again, was made after the woman failed to identify Gatling in the lineup, Gatling was charged with murder, and his attorney persuaded him to plead guilty in order to avoid the possibility of the death penalty. And so he followed his lawyer's advice and pleaded guilty and was then sentenced uh, subsequently to 30 years to life in prison. A week later... He asked the judge to withdraw his plea, but his petition was denied. And uh, he then continued to proclaim his innocence and filed several other petitions over the next several years, but all of them were denied as well. However, 50 years later, a division of the district attorney's office, known as the Conviction Review Unit, became aware of Gatling's case and began looking into it and actually uncovered additional evidence that pointed to Gatling's innocence that had actually been withheld by the prosecution from the defense team, and that was enough to reverse the verdict. And so, as you can see already up here, after 50 years, a judge finally exonerated Paul Gatling, now 81 years old, officially clearing his record, And the current district attorney issued him an apology for his wrongful conviction and imprisonment. And yet, of course, as we know, the years that Paul Gatling spent in prison are years that he won't ever be able to get back. Now, that's one very dramatic example of injustice. Yet those kinds of things do happen. And there are also a wide variety of other kinds of injustices that take place as well. Uh, For example, there can be unjust laws that privilege some people above others, or unjust hiring practices that wrongfully discriminate against certain people, or just thinking of our day-to-day lives, uh, perhaps one of the most common examples of injustice is when people spread lies about someone and falsely make claims about the person that have no basis in reality. Those lies can have an enormous impact on a person's life and reputation. It's also not uncommon for people in this world who are in positions of power, such as maybe a manager at the workplace or a school administrator or a government official or even a police officer, 
to abuse their power and act in an unjust way toward those who are under them. So over the course of your life, it's very likely that you'll be the victim of some kind of injustice or mistreatment to at least some degree. As the popular saying goes, life isn't fair. Uh, Experiencing injustice is just one aspect of living in a fallen world. And so how then can we respond to the injustices committed against us in a biblical way? That's the question, and that's what we'll see this morning in Acts 25, 1 through 12. Now, before we dig into this passage, let's remind ourselves of what Paul's been through so far. Back in Acts 21, Paul is falsely accused by certain malicious Jews of acting in ways that undermine the Old Testament law. His accusers also jumped to conclusions about something they had seen earlier in the day, Paul taking a Gentile with him around the city of Jerusalem, and they falsely accused Paul of unlawfully bringing that Gentile into the temple, which was strictly forbidden. And they end up actually forming a mob and severely beating Paul right there in the Jerusalem temple. It all happens very quickly. Uh, Nobody apparently uh, takes the time to actually gather the facts. Instead, as soon as the crowd of people at the temple hears the accusations against Paul, they automatically assume that he's guilty, and they start trying to kill him. Now, fortunately, the commander of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem, called a tribune, hears what's happening and rescues Paul from the mob and eventually transports him and and transfers him into the custody of Felix, who was the regional governor, and he was located about 65 miles away in the city of Caesarea. And yet, Paul continues to experience injustice at the hand of Felix. Even though Felix is very familiar with the nature of the controversy surrounding Paul and how baseless all of it is, he nevertheless leaves Paul in prison. In fact, he does that for two whole years. During that two-year period of time, Felix frequently, frequently calls Paul in to speak with him, but Scripture tells us that he was actually just hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. We're then told in Acts 24, 27, that when the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix knew that the Jews wanted him to keep Paul in prison, So as a favor to them, that's exactly what he did. So that's what's happened up to this point. You're caught up now. (laughs) Paul has faced one injustice after another. And now we read this in our main passage, Acts 25, 1 through 3. Now Now three days after Felix had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So the Jews apparently weren't that creative. (laughs) Uh, 
this was the very same way they had tried to kill Paul earlier when he was originally in the tribune's custody back in Acts 23, and that had failed. And yet, even though those plans didn't work the first time, they, I guess, decide to give it another go. You know, I can just imagine them approaching the, the, the Felix as he's, or Festus as he's in Jerusalem and, and being like, you know, Festus, Caesarea is just so far for us to travel in order to prosecute Paul. You know, why don't you just go ahead and bring him here to Jerusalem? You know, for a trial. The story then continues in verses 4 through 8. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal in order that Paul be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So again, it's like deja vu. All of this is pretty much exactly what happened previously when Paul was arguing his case before the previous governor, Felix. The Jews came to Caesarea, made a very weak case against Paul, and Paul gives his defense. Then verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, if you remember that phrase, wishing to do the Jews a favor, is the exact same phrase that was used back in the previous chapter, Acts 24, 27, where it said that the reason Felix left Paul in prison was because he desired to do the Jews a favor. And now, Festus wants to do the Jews a favor by sending Paul to Jerusalem for the rest of his trial. Of course, Festus was fully aware of the significant risks of sending Paul to Jerusalem. It was basically a death sentence. And Paul knew that as well. So, left with no other option, Paul does the only thing he can do. Look at verses 10 through 12. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You see, one of the privileges of Roman citizenship was the ability to appeal your case to the emperor himself. And since Paul's a Roman citizen, that's exactly what he ends up doing. He understands that the terrible injustice he's facing and is left with no other option but to appeal to the emperor. So as we've been seeing this whole time for several chapters now, Paul suffers one injustice after another. At this point in the narrative, he's now been repeatedly denied justice for over two years with no end in sight. 
Yet through it all, his conduct is exemplary. And that brings us to what I believe is the main idea of this chapter, which is that God calls us to respond to injustice in a way that glorifies him. God calls us to respond to injustice in a way that glorifies him. Because remember that injustice is something not only that Paul faced, but it's also something that we can sometimes experience in various ways and to various degrees. And that really shouldn't surprise us since the reality is that we are living in a fallen world that's populated moreover by people who have sinful hearts. And so injustices are going to take place and will sometimes affect us in a very direct way. We should expect that. Just like if we were walking through a swamp, we would expect to be bitten by mosquitoes. And yet, again, God calls us to respond to that injustice in a way that glorifies him. And as we can see from this passage, and actually not just from this particular passage, but for the, from the entire narrative of Paul's imprisonment in Acts, there are five ways in which I believe we can do that. Five ways, modeled by Paul, in which we can respond to injustice in a way that glorifies God. First, remind yourself that God is at work in and through your circumstances. God hasn't taken a break or fallen asleep at the wheel, but is actively working in and through your circumstances to accomplish his purposes. We saw this back in Acts 23, 11, where God told Paul as he was sitting there in that prison cell, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul had been longing for some time to go to Rome in order to engage in ministry there with uh, the belief that God was calling him to go there. And here, God not only confirms that calling, but even tells him that his unjust imprisonment isn't a hindrance to him going to Rome, but is actually the very thing that would bring him there. That would eventually happen, of course, through Paul's appeal to Caesar. So leave it to God in his infinite wisdom and power to use unjust circumstances to accomplish his glorious purposes. It reminds me of the story of Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Joseph went through an incredible amount of unjust treatment. His brothers were jealous of the fact that he was daddy's favorite. And so when a caravan of slave traders was passing through, his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph then lived as a while for a, as a slave in Egypt and managed to rise to a privileged position in the household of a prominent Egyptian named Potiphar. However, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to rape her, another injustice. And so Joseph was sent to prison. But while in prison, he got the opportunity, with God's help, to interpret a dream, a very perplexing dream of the Egyptian king called Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was so pleased with Joseph that he appointed him as the second highest ruler in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. 
And then, a few years later, there was a severe famine all over that region of the world, and so Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to buy food. And who do you think they should encounter in Egypt but their little brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery? And they were understandable, or understandably very fearful at what Joseph would do to them because they were now entirely at his mercy. But Joseph said something to them that I have never been able to forget. In Genesis 50, 20, he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So even though what Joseph's brothers did was unquestionably wrong and terribly unjust, Joseph recognized that God was actually the one ultimately behind their actions and was using everything that happened to accomplish his perfect purposes. Yet, of course, the greatest example of God using unjust circumstances to accomplish his purposes isn't with the Apostle Paul or even with Joseph, but with Jesus himself. From the false accusations made against Jesus to the kangaroo court that was convened in the middle of the night to convict him to the way Pontius Pilate turned Jesus over to the Jews even though he knew full well that Jesus was innocent. Everything that happened to Jesus that led to him dying on the cross was terribly unjust. Yet God was at work through it all. In Acts 2.23, Peter states that Jesus was, quote, delivered up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. From the very beginning, God planned it. And his purpose in doing so was to rescue his people from their sin. You see, by dying on the cross, Jesus took on himself the sins of the world. He died in our place and suffered the judgment for our sin because somebody had to suffer that judgment. And of course, typically, that somebody would be us. But in his love, Jesus stood in our place and suffered on our behalf. And so God used the outrageous injustice that the Jews committed against Jesus in order to carry out the greatest rescue mission this world has ever known. So whenever we experience injustice in our lives, the first thing we need to do is remind ourselves that God's at work. Even if we don't understand what he's doing, he's still at work and accomplishing his purposes in and through our circumstances. Then the second way to respond to injustice is to leave vengeance to God. Leave vengeance to God. That language comes from Paul himself, not in Acts, but in Romans 12, 17 through 19, where he writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, here it is, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our natural inclination, of course, is to take matters into our own hands, right? And to try our best to exact revenge however we can on those who wrong us. Yet God tells us, what does he say here? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Man, that's hard. (laughs) And yet that's what we're instructed to do, to leave vengeance to God. And that's precisely what we see Paul doing during his imprisonment as well. Of course, his opportunities for revenge in that situation are admittedly limited, but we nevertheless get a glimpse of this mentality in Acts 23.3. When Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court, and proclaims his innocence to the Jewish leaders gathered there, the high priest orders the guards to uh, strike him in the mouth. In response, Paul declares, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. So Paul definitely speaks his mind here, to say the least. But even while speaking his mind in a pretty direct way, he still recognizes the principle that retribution is God's prerogative. God is the one who, as, the high pri- or as Paul says, will strike the high priest. And that's a great reminder for us that a day is coming that is a day of reckoning <laughs> for everyone who treats others unjustly. Rest assured that nobody is ultimately going to get away with anything. Even now, God is preparing his courtroom for the day when perfect justice will be administered. A day when every offense will be made known and every detail of what's been done will be exposed for all to see. And justice will prevail. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God says. Don't doubt for a second that the day of perfect justice is coming, a day when everyone will see that justice delayed isn't justice denied. And it's in light of that coming day of judgment that we're called to leave vengeance to God. That's what enables us to do that. And moving forward, a third way to respond to injustice in a way that glorifies God is to love your enemies. While Paul's incarcerated, he repeatedly shows more concern for the spiritual welfare of his captors than he does for his own legal interests. Even though he certainly defends himself very skillfully, we see evidence again and again that his main interest is in sharing the gospel with everyone he encounters. Whether it's with the hostile Jewish mob in in Acts 22 or with Felix in Acts 24, or as we'll see in a couple weeks with with Festus and King Agrippa in Acts 26. Everywhere he goes, even while imprisoned, he demonstrates deep, genuine concern, even for the very people who were involved in these injustices 
against him. He exhibits love, even for his enemies. This behavior, of course, is ultimately drawn from the teaching of Jesus in Luke 6, 27 through 29, where he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. You know, I'm not sure there is anything more countercultural than the behavior Jesus commands in these verses. I'm no anthropologist, but I can't imagine that there's ever been any culture in the history of the world where it's been popular to love your enemies. Because that mentality is just so radically contrary to human nature. Our natural inclination is to despise our enemies, not love them. Yet Jesus not only tells us to love our enemies, but even goes far beyond that and actually shows us what that looks like. Even though every single one of us has, in effect, declared ourselves to be God's enemy through our rebellion against him, what did Jesus do? He died to pay for our sins. Take note that he didn't just exhibit simple kindness toward us. No, he loved us sacrificially. And incredibly, even as he was in the process of dying in agony on the cross, Jesus exhibited love for his enemies by praying for the very individuals who were crucifying him. Remember that? He prayed, Father, forgive them. So Jesus is the ultimate example of this principle. So here's a practical challenge for you this week and me. Pick one person who's wronged you and start praying for them on a regular basis. And I know what some of you think. Don't pray in precatory psalms either, all right? Those are off limits for this. Pray for God's blessing on them and for him to be at work in them and for them. And see if God doesn't use that to warm your heart toward them and to bring you closer to having the love of Christ, even for your enemies. Then a fourth God-glorifying way to respond when you're treated unjustly is to be active in your pursuit of justice. Be active in your pursuit of justice. Uh, this is by far the clearest behavior that's on display in our main passage of Acts 25, 1 through 12. Uh, the main occurrence that's recorded here, specifically in verse 11, is that Paul appeals his case to Caesar. And by that, he shows that it's perfectly acceptable to utilize the legal options available to us to the fullest extent possible in our pursuit of justice. And from the very beginning, really, of his incarceration, as he was about to be flogged by the tribune in Acts 22, Paul wasn't shy about making use of his Roman citizenship. And here in chapter 25, he makes use of it again in appealing to Caesar. You see, he doesn't just roll over and let whatever's going to happen, happen. He actively seeks to defend himself and win his case and preserve his life. 
You see, at no point does Scripture teach that we're supposed to be passive in our pursuit or in our response to injustice. Either the injustice is committed against us or the injustice is committed against others. On the contrary, our faith in a God of justice should lead us to be very active and even passionate in our pursuit of justice through the proper methods. I think one of the best examples of undeterred passion in the pursuit of justice is William Wilberforce, an evangelical Christian and member of the British Parliament in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, Wilberforce saw firsthand the horrors of the British slave trade and felt compelled to do something. He didn't just lament what he saw, but actively and passionately pursued justice. Needless to say, abolishing the British slave trade was no easy task. The British economy was so dependent on the slave trade that most people, the vast majority of people, saw absolutely no way for Britain to survive apart from it. They thought it was an absolute necessity. Yet Wilberforce was determined to address this grave injustice. So in 1791, he proposed a bill in the British House of Commons that made provisions for the gradual abolition of the slave trade. But, unfortunately, it was defeated. Many of the members of Parliament didn't even attend the vote because they didn't want to have to go on record with that issue. Wilberforce then introduced other bills to abolish, uh, or, or to abolish the slave trade in 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. But all of those were defeated as well. Now, after all these failed attempts, I think a lot of people would probably just give up. On top of that, Wilberforce suffered a debilitating physical sickness that sometimes kept him bedridden for weeks. He was the victim of all kinds of outrageous rumors circulating around the country about him, and he was the target of multiple assassination attempts. And yet Wilberforce was so passionate and tenacious in his pursuit of justice that he refused to give up. And then finally, in 1807, because of Wilberforce's efforts, Parliament at long last passed a law that abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. After 20 years of thankless and tireless campaigning, Wilberforce won the day. He then worked to make sure that the laws were enforced. And then, 26 years after that, right before his death, Wilberforce lived to see Parliament pass another law abolishing not just the slave trade, but the entire practice of slavery in the British Empire. You see, Wilberforce, as a Bible-believing Christian, he understood that faith in a God of justice should motivate us to do more than anyone else in society in our pursuit of justice. Even though the gospel itself is obviously our primary focus, it's also very appropriate for us to exhibit love for God and our neighbor by actively seeking a more just society. 
See, there's not ultimately any tension between, or any conflict or, or any competition between the great commission of making disciples and the great commandments of loving God and our neighbor. Instead, when you think about it, the great commission is ultimately an expression of the great commandments. And the great commandments, in turn, prepare the way for accomplishing the great commission. Then a final way to respond to injustice in a way that glorifies God is to set your gaze on our eternal hope. So we've talked about reminding ourselves that God's at work, leaving vengeance to God, loving our enemies, being active in our pursuit of justice, and now setting our gaze on our eternal hope. One of the most conspicuous ways in, or aspects of the way Paul conducts himself throughout his imprisonment is that he always seems to be calm, collected, confident, and courageous. You know, now that I think of it, that would probably make a pretty decent sermon outline. I hate to let all that good alliteration go to waste. But not only would it be a good sermon outline, it's also a good description of Paul during his imprisonment. And the reason Paul was able to remain so you know, calm, collected, confident, and courageous was because he knew that regardless of what happened to him in that imprisonment, that his heavenly inheritance was secure. He explains his mentality quite well in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is it being renewed? What is the thought that's renewing it? Well, here it is. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are, that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He then sums all of that up in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, with this simple and concise statement in verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what we have to do in the face of injustice. Walk by faith, not by sight. You see, you may be a victim now, but you'll be a victor then. You'll be triumphant one day in the new heavens and new earth, where injustice will be nothing more than a faint and distant memory and will be replaced by perfect love for God and one another. That's the hope that the gospel gives us in the midst of all the injustices in this world. The gospel empowers us to face all of the injustices in the world by giving us a hope that's beyond the world. Hope for a glorious future. And the more injustice we suffer in this present life, the more we're in a position to appreciate just how wonderful that future is going to be. Every day that we live here in this fallen world should remind us that we were made for another.